It's once again a joy for me to have the privilege of opening up God's word with you uh, this morning. And for the last three months, uh, those of you who have been watching know that we have um, diverted from our normal practice uh, at APC of, of working our way through books of the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And uh, during this time, as we've jumped around in different places in God's word, I, I trust and hope and pray that the Lord has uh, challenged you and um, comforted you and maybe even rebuked you uh, by his word. Through all that, through all these sermons in different places, I have longed uh, to settle ourselves once again uh, in a biblical book uh, that we could uh, just work through together, uh, letting God speak to us week in and week out. And we do that here again this morning. Um, and so I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to the Old Testament book of Esther. The Old Testament book of Esther. You can certainly follow along uh, on the screen. Uh, the passage will be in front of you momentarily. After a lot of consideration and prayer, uh, I have landed uh, for us, uh, I don't know quite how long it'll take, uh, probably at least a few, uh, two or three months uh, to work our way through the book of Esther. Uh, but I've landed here and you might ask, well, why are we now in the book of Esther? Why land in a book for instance, that in 167 verses never mentions God once. A book that is never quoted by any New Testament writer. A book that didn't even have a commentary written on it in the first seven centuries of the church. A book that John Calvin, the great reformer, never even preached through. And a book that Martin Luther said this, I am so hostile to it that I wish it didn't exist. Well, that sounds like a, a winner of a book to go through, right? Well, I think you all would agree with me that despite the challenges that Esther might pose for us as God's people, there is no bad place for us to be in Scripture. All of Scripture is profitable for teaching and preaching and rebuke and righteousness. And Paul goes on and on. But I didn't just close my eyes as, as maybe some of you do in devotions and, and point I didn't just land in Esther that way. I want to assure you of that. I chose Esther in part because it has important themes for us, I think, to think about as, as modern hearers. It's a book, like every book in the Bible, where we ought to see Jesus, even though he wouldn't come for generations, even though he's not mentioned once. But I also picked this book because, simply put, it's a great story. It's a great story, a vivid story with profound truths, and it's not a fairy tale. 
It's a historical account filled with suspense and and irony and exotic settings and poetic justice with a beautiful lead character at the center and an evil villain opposite her. It even has a happy ending and you add some sex and some violence and we've got all the makings of a Hollywood hit right here in the book of Esther. And so I think this is a story for us to be swept up into once again, to have our hearts stirred by and to walk away changed. And so it seemed to me good and right for us in the midst of all that we're experiencing to set our hearts here for a time. And I hope that you'll agree. Now before I... um, read our passage this morning, I want to set the scene just a bit, even before you hear and and begin to dive into the account, um, so that you'll better understand what it is that you're hearing. And and, uh, just a disclaimer uh, that this, even though I'm I'm gonna read it in just a moment, this week will be largely introduction. There's a lot of introductory material to set this book up. Let me first of all say that we don't know who wrote the book of Esther. It obviously, by name, is about a woman named Esther, and we'll get to her, not this week, but in the weeks to come. Many believe that possibly Mordecai, a character that will be introduced um, in a couple weeks, possibly he wrote this book and this account because of the level and detail of firsthand uh, knowledge that exists in the book. The book takes place, the account takes place uh, over a hundred years after the Babylonian exile of Israel. So Persia is now in charge and they've conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus has decreed that the Jews who had been carted away to Babylon, who were existing in Babylon, now have the opportunity, they have the right to go back and to return to their homeland if they so desire. Now some did, some did not. And you'll remember, those of you who have been at Ascension for a, for a lot of years, you'll remember that years ago, one of the first books that we worked through, at least in my tenure here at the church, was the book of Nehemiah which occurs uh, after these events in the book of Esther. So Nehemiah takes place chronologically after Esther, but Nehemiah chronicles some of the return of God's people, specifically to rebuild, to begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem around, um, around their great city. The Jews that we're about to read about in the book of Esther are some of the ones who have stayed behind. So they haven't returned to their homeland. They have stayed in Persia. They have built their lives there. They're continuing to live in a foreign land. And as we shall soon see, some of them are beginning to rise to positions of prominence and power. The book of Esther is one of two biblical books that entirely, entirely takes place outside of the promised land. This book and the book of Daniel. So those are the two books. And so that's, that's the context of, of where God's people are, what is happening in the life of God's people. And uh, so let's go ahead and dive in now uh, to Esther chapter one, verses one through 22. Pretty long passage this morning. Bear with me uh, as we read it, and, or as I read it and you listen. 
Esther chapter one, beginning at verse one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third reign, third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to, and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and the drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belong to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Ad Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom." According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the queen's behavior will be known to will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, 
and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that they may not be repealed that Vashti is never to come again before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king, is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king, and the princes and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we work through this chapter, I hope you enjoyed the start of the story. As we work through this first chapter of the book of Esther, I'd like us to see two truths that I think this beginning introductory part of the story teaches us. And the first one is this. The world's greatness is an illusion. The world's greatness is an illusion. I don't know how many of you out there remember uh, a TV show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It was part of my childhood running uh, from the mid-80s to the early 90s. It was hosted by uh, Robin Leach, and it chronicled the extravagant lifestyles of the rich and famous, athletes and and actors and, and powerful business moguls, and it always ended with the tagline, caviar, excuse me, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Of course, he said it in a nice British accent accent that I don't want to try to duplicate. Champagne wishes and caviar dreams. You see, it was the assumption that we all wanted to be there on that yacht, in that mansion. And I suppose based upon the, the ratings of the show and the amount of years that it rang that That was a safe assumption to make. But as we turn to God's word this morning, our passage before us in the beginning of this great story asks the question, is that really the place we should be? Is that where our hearts find the security that they've longed for? You see, our our story this morning opens up in in kind of a lifestyle-esque sort of way, right? The the description that I just read, hopefully you noticed, it's vivid. You're, You're supposed to be impressed. Chapter one of Esther is about not just one king, it's actually about two kings. One scene and one unseen. Let me explain. Verses one through nine, if you have your Bibles with there, verses one through nine is a flex. It's an intentional flex. It's the portrait of the most powerful man in the world at that time. His name is King 
Ahasuerus, also known by the Greek transliteration of his Persian name, King Xerxes. Same guy. You see, verses one through nine is an intentional flex, not just by the way that the writer presents the material and and describes what's going on, but by the actions of the king himself, right? The king has made this empire, now let the party begin. Let the feasting begin. At the center of this passage are, are two feasts, three feasts, if we include Queen, King, excuse me, Queen Vashti's. But the two feasts of the king are the important ones. There's, the first one is six months long. See, Xerxes wants everyone to know of his greatness. We could divide that greatness into three things. First, he has the power. He's a powerful dude. 127 provinces are under his control. Now the writer uh, that's, that's writing Esther uses the smallest government district here to really make it sound all the more impressive, right? For instance, in our context, rather than saying the entire state is under his control, You say he has 39 counties under his control. Sounds better, right? But let me help you just a little bit more here in 2020 America. Take a modern map, and I know everyone's world geography isn't great. Mine's not great either. But think of a modern map, and if we overlay Xerxes' reign these 127 provinces, his empire covers this. Northwest India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, and Northern Sudan. Do you get the picture now? Are you impressed? This guy rules. He basically rules the entire known world. His power is evident. And the writer and he wants you to know it. But not just his power. He also wants you to know that he possesses glory. While the first feast was for his nobles, his governors, his officials. The second feast, everybody's included. All are invited to see. And verses six and seven describe quite a scene of of opulence. Couches of gold, precious stones embedded into the floor so that everybody walks on them. It's a pretty amazing description. And there's only couple other detailed descriptions in the Bible of this type of physical beauty. And do you know what they're about, those other descriptions? They're about the tabernacle or the temple. So here, in the place of the glory of Yahweh's temple, comes Xerxes' palace. He has the power. He has the glory. And he also wants control. There's a curious moment 
or curious comment in this description in verse eight. If you have your Bibles, you can see it. It says, um, verse eight, let me just read it again. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. See, what the writer wants you to know is that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, that his control of his environment normally extends all the way to the drinking of his guests. And so normally in a feast that included King Ahasuerus, if the king raised his glass to take a sip, everyone in the hall must do the same. But he's decided to be generous. And so he's decided that at this feast, he's gonna exercise restraint. He's gonna allow everyone to drink as they would like to drink, not simply following his lead. But the writer includes it to remind us that Hashuerus wants control. So as we take a step back and we look at this whole scene, what I, and more importantly, what the writer of Esther wants you to see is that the king has it all together. I mean, he is living the dream power and glory and control or is he living the dream does he really possess these things the world's greatness is an illusion you see everything becomes everything begins to come unraveled in verse 10 The illusion begins to be unmasked. The wheels begin to fall off. First of all, Xerxes, he loses control of himself. The text says it pretty generously when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Read, the king got drunk. He loses control of himself and he makes this ill-advised request that totally backfires on him. He, he wants to bring in his trophy wife into a hall of drunken men to show her off and do who knows what else. And then he loses control of her. Vashti creates a scandal like no other as social media blows up with the hashtag Vashti said no. We don't know why. Vashti said no, maybe it was noble. She didn't want to be a trophy wife and maybe she should be cheered. Maybe it was not so noble and there was some other problematic reason why she refused come to coming why she refused to come to the king. The author clearly doesn't think that's a big deal and doesn't want to make it a big deal. The issue is Xerxes reigns over 127 provinces and yet his wife is apparently outside of his reign. And then to top it all off, he loses control of his own power. He consults with his advisors for interpretation of his own law, which was a common thing among rulers of that day, but they make this, this small stand by Vashti into a national crisis. And no doubt her decision was an embarrassment and it was a big deal. But now it has suddenly become the cry of a national empire-wide campaign. If we give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. 
And so the irony here is that what, what should have been and what could have been for King Ahasuerus a private embarrassment, suddenly now he's going to make it into a royal edict and proclaim it across the empire that his wife refused him. And he's going to try to le- legislate respect in his empire. See, what's going on here? Well, it's actually quite comical, and it's meant to be. The writer is showing you that the world's greatness is an illusion. Despite all the beauty and majesty, it's an illusion. There's no visible hero in these verses, is there? While we haven't been yet introduced to the main character of the book, even Esther is not going to be the point. So what's really going on here is not simply that the world's greatness is an illusion. The point is that there is a hero that is hidden. That there is one who truly holds all the power and the glory and the control and the greatness. And that's the second simple truth of this passage. Yes, the world's greatness is an illusion, but the hidden king truly reigns. The hidden king truly reigns. Let me begin this point with a quote from a commentator. He says, in most of the Old Testament, God boldly speaks, acts, and directs the course of history But in a time of foreign domination by pagan nations, he works behind the scenes of both believers and unbelievers. Yes, God is never mentioned in this chapter and he will not be mentioned once in the entirety of the book. But his fingerprints are all over this story. Just like we saw through the wickedness of Joseph's story weeks ago when we were there, Yahweh is at work. He is the one with the power. Deuteronomy 8, he is the one who raises up kings and makes people wealthy. He is the one possessing glory like no other. He is the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills and the earth and everything in it, Psalm 24.1. He is the one who ultimately is in control. Job 1, he gives and he takes away. You see, at this point, we need to have Psalm 2, and I I suspect God's people had Psalm 2 ringing in their ears. Let me read some of it to you. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Skipping to the end. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
You see, what we see here in Esther chapter one, it's just the beginning. It's just setting the stage for all the drama that is still to come. But this one simple domino needed to fall for everything else to be set in motion. And and it wasn't a burning bush. And it wasn't a miraculous parting of the Red Sea. It wasn't manna from heaven. There won't be one miracle in this entire book but through the drunken arrogance of a king and the stubbornness of a queen. Without those two things, there can be no Esther. And without Esther, as we soon shall see, there can be no salvation for the Jews. And without salvation for the Jews, there can be no Jesus. And without Jesus, There is no peace. As we bring this into our lives, one wonders in our own context what kind of stage is being set in our own world. Nobody knows. I don't think we're called to try to figure it out, to try to interpret the times. But will we be able to look back in 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now and and say without a pandemic, without a, a nation divided, without X, there could be no Y. I don't know if we will see. I don't know what we'll see. But I do know what we need to be reminded of by His Word and that is that there is a hidden king then even in the midst of the sorrow, even in the midst of what seems to us like chaos, he is ruling and he is reigning. Boy, that's good news. To have that kind of promise for our hearts in times like this. And ultimately, this story in this chapter points us to the gospel. The hidden king, the king of kings in the book of Esther will become the king revealed in the person of Jesus. And that king, that king Jesus is infinitely better than the king that we see here. And to bring it all around full circle that king invites you as his bride to his feast. And he does so not in arrogant pride, not for the purpose of making you work for him, but just to enjoy the feast. Just to rest in him. And so I call you once again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, to rest in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to feast on Jesus. Don't trust in the illusion of of what you see, whether it be the prosperity of the wicked, whether it be the wealth of the world, whether it be the chaos on the news. Don't simply trust in what you see, but trust in the reality of what you know is there and yet hidden of who you know is there 
and yet hidden, working all things for the good of those who love him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for such a vivid account to remind us of such a stabilizing truth. Father, though your ways are mysterious, we trust you and we look to you. Give us the grace, I pray, to rest in you, whatever circumstances we are feeling, whatever we might be enduring. Father, this I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.